This is John Zaninovich. Welcome to Move My Mass. You'll be hearing from great guests talk about balancing life and being fit. Welcome to another episode of Move My Mass. I have a four-time Race Across America winner with me today, Carrie Ryan, owner of Action Sports in Bakersfield, the best bike shop around by far. I think I I know I've purchased close to 20 bikes from him over the years. Uh, unbelievable, unbelievable father has a daughter who uh, jumps horses. So he is busy all the time going to different shows, running a bike shop, and staying incredibly fit. So I'd like to welcome Kerry Ryan to the show. Thank you, John. Welcome, Kerry. My, my pleasure. Hey, uh, so yeah, you do own the best bike shop anywhere. Humbly accepted. Thank you. What got you into that? What made you want to start a bike shop, own a bike shop? I would say I worked at a ski shop as a senior in high school. And it, because it was a sports shop, they had multi, multiple sports. I, I enjoyed the clientele. I, I loved the fitness. I loved the attitude. of every, Everybody that came in the store was excited, was enthusiastic. So then as I ran that shop, one of my teachers who became a great friend was Norm Hoffman, legendary person here in Bakersfield. But Norm had said, hey, you build a bike shop and I'm going to send everybody to you. I'll send the whole college to you because he had all these okay, health nice. classes. Nice. Yeah. So Norm had said, you build a bike shop, I'll send people. So while I was working for another store called Action or Sports Circus, I built the bike shop up by College Center in Bakersfield. And that became how I got started in bicycling. Okay, so you you own the bike shop first, and then you got involved in cycling. Well, so yeah. I ran. I was a manager of Sports Circus, and we okay. built a bike shop for Sports Circus. And then that's when I actually got into cycling at a higher level. So Norm had said, uh, "Hey, you buy a bike. You get get yourself a bike. I'm going to teach you how to ride." And he had no idea that I'd ridden my bike to the golf course every day from 11 to 17. Ah. So when I got a good bike. He and I went out and he took me out on Panorama Drive and said, hey, go as hard as you can for two minutes. And I knew how to pace myself because I'd ridden my bike a lot. And I knew mm -hmm. how to go fast because mm -hmm. I reached all the cars from stoplight to stoplight <laughs> right. yeah. going to the golf courses. Mm -hmm. So it just became, he just liked coaching me. And that's how my cycling career started. That's also how um, once I ran the shop for Sports Circus, I knew that I wanted to have my own store. And then I wanted to have uh, my own career, not for sports circus. Ah. So you've owned Action Sports for 32 years? 32 that, and a half now. Yeah. That is uh, quite a run for any kind of business. Yeah, I should, have been dead. I should have been dead by now. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into what I mentioned in the introduction. Four, four Ram victories and one record that still holds. Correct. So we still hold the record. The Ram... Race is a bizarre race. Yeah, so, what what prompted you to do this race? What? How did you get introduced to it? So in 1994, there were a group of two guys out of Ridgecrest and two guys from Bakersfield. And they said, hey, do you want to be our alternate? Because they needed to have a backup in case somebody crashed or somebody went down or couldn't race the race. 
So once the race starts, you're, if you lose a racer, you're down to three. If you lose another one, you're down to two. But up until the race starts, you could sub somebody in. So let me back up. Well, I don't think we mentioned it was a four-man four man four team. Correct. Yeah. Four-man okay. relay. So anyway, I was their backup fifth rider. Um, Mike Hollebeck was their uh, also uh, alternate. So we, we were both fifth and sixth riders, whatever you want to call it. So Mike Hollebeck was a great, great guy here, local guy. Very fast still to this day. And um, we both trained for it like we were on the team. And then nobody got sick and nobody crashed. So neither one of us made it to the team. Okay. But you were there just in case somebody... Yes. And then they asked if I would be a crew chief. So 1994, this other four-man team without me went along the race across America. And I was their crew chief. And I learned going across country how tough the race was for the racers and the crew. So they didn't do well. And part of it was we didn't have the race figured out. Okay. So a good story was um, we went to the first night. They introduced all the teams. Nobody's raced yet. Um, it's like the, the day before the race, obviously. Yeah. So I'm looking at all these teams after the, after the party, and they're all meeting, and they're all talking, and all these people are congregating. And they're, I'm going, man, what are they doing? They're, they, they're so serious. But I had no idea. They were doing team meetings. These people had all done the race before. Yeah. And I had, I'm, they just asked me to be a crew chief because, hey, well, you're not a racing. Why don't you be our crew chief? I should have studied the race. I should have known what the route book meant. I should have known a lot of things I didn't know. So I went in as a rookie crew chief mm-hmm. and failed them for about two days. And day two, I, I finally said, okay, I've got this now. Okay. And I then, they, we never made another mistake across country the whole rest of the way. Maybe 12 more states we went through with no mistakes. But the first two states, we missed turn after turn. That team suffered miserably. Yeah. They were ahead, then they'd miss a, miss a turn, and then we were behind. Come back, chase them down, get ahead, miss another turn, then they'd be behind. Could you imagine being a racer? Missing and turns. When you're heading out to... When you're winning. When you're going out for 3,000 miles? No, I can't imagine that. Yeah. So this team finished fourth, and I felt like I failed them. So in 1995, I thought everything I learned in 94 would benefit my crew training. So I trained the crew to where they couldn't make the mistakes I made as a crew chief. And then the – so we raced in 95, and we won handily. No, We made one wrong turn by 100 yards. So this – this race is like a um, a route book for a um, car rally. So if it said, hey, go a quarter mile up, make a right on A Street, make a left on Chester, make a right on this, make a right. left on this. Right. And you're going, I've never been in this town. I don't know where A or Chester is. I don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. And the racers are actually faster than the cars. So you miss turn after turn after turn. Right. So you were a crew chief before you raced it. Correct. 94, I was a crew chief. And then that taught me how they lost the race and how I lost it for them, theoretically. Yeah, which is very beneficial when you finally did start racing it. Correct. And when was your first, what was your first race? So, 95 was the first four-man race, and it went flawlessly. It was hard to believe that back then there were no cell phones, no GPSs, there was nothing. And you're handed this book that said, take a slight veer. Oh, no. Um, yeah. And you're thinking, well, is this the veer or is this the right? So you have two sets right. of turns you could take. 
and you don't know if you're on until you go another mile up and they'll say, okay, there should be a Burger King on the right if you're on course. Hey, there's no Burger King. Go back. That's a, that's an example of what we are going through. How do they start a race like that? Do you all line up and just, all right, gun goes off and there you go? Or is it uh, interval timing? Like well, it still, it still runs similarly to how we did it in 94 through 2004. And that is where they do a mass start for the teams, not for the solos. So the teams will start. Let's say there are 40 teams. And the 40 teams will move along in what they call a parade route. Yeah. And technically, they're supposed to start the clock at a certain point. Um, it's, but you're throttled. You can't, your speed is affected by the fact that you're only going 18 miles an hour instead of 30. Only 18. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. you're going along at a snail's pace for maybe 15 miles. And then they get you far enough out of town. And then what they'll do is um, they used to do what they call a mass restart. So they let everybody okay. regroup and then they will send all the teams off, boom, like, a, and you're just racing like as fast as you can go. And now um, they, what they do is they'll send off a team every one minute. Okay. And then they'll adjust the clock accordingly. So, and how many teams are there normally? Well, in each division, I would say they average 10 to 15 per division. Okay. So how quickly are you completely separated out of, out of sight? Is it within a day or how competitive? So, you know, what was wild is 95 through 98, I would say I learned a lot about how to race the race from the start. Mm -hmm. So everybody's in sight, maybe to the California, Arizona border. Okay. And in 2004, I, I just had this master plan of how I was going to destroy these other teams. And because we were considered the underdog, it was because I was the old guy on the team. I was 45 at the time. And the other teams were all young guys. And my guys, my teammates were all like 25. And so at 45, they thought, oh, there's a weak link. We got this. That team doesn't even count. So I was, right. we were just considered fluff. Yeah. So we take off from the race. And by the time we hit the Arizona border, we had a 20-minute lead which is unheard of. So our average speed to Arizona was close to 29.7 miles an hour to be approximate. Insane. Super fast. Yes. And that's with 5,000 feet of climbing. Right. Before Arizona. So unbelievable speed that we attained. And then we fell apart after that little by little by little, but we still obviously won the race. But So you say you fell apart and you won the race. When did it come back? When did you... So, That's 2004, we had little mini catastrophes. And this, um, there's a, right now on Amazon, there's a race called 4 by 3000 which it should have said 4 by you know, whatever. But um, it's 3,000 mile with a four-person relay. And this team went across, and you, they basically chronicle every mistake they made. And every team has mistakes and every team has a van that runs out of gas or gets a flat tire. And every team has a crew failure or a rider failure. Yeah. So in 2004, obviously we had a, a couple different episodes that we were so far ahead. And then all of a sudden we have catastrophe after catastrophe and their teams are catching back up and then we're racing side by side again. But that's, that's the nature of the race. Right. So a four man team racing 3000 miles. What, Intervals are you 
running? Do you run, do you run for an hour and then the next guy takes over? What, what were your sets? So that's a great question. 1994 as a crew chief, they decided they were going to do an hour each and they were going to go on a, a, so you have four riders called it ABCD. Okay. And they were going to go A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. So theoretically, rider A would ride A, B, A, B, then have a five-hour break. Okay. So he'd ride hour on, hour off, hour on, and then five-hour break. So they thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. But it was really slow because if you said, go out to Enos Lane on the bike path, mm-hmm. and it's 10 miles away, yeah. you're going to go this fast. If you said... Now, double that. You're going to have to slow it down a mile an hour. So, these um, 1994, the one-hour intervals that they raced were painful. The racers didn't really recover from them very well. Um, even with five hours sleep, they were sleeping well, but they weren't recovering physically very well. Okay. So, 1995, as my own, I became crew chief and racer, by the way. So I didn't really have a crew chief. I just trusted myself to be able to stay alert and awake and set all the protocols to where every racer would then race 30 minutes. Uh-huh. So we tried to do 30s, and we won. And 30 minutes, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. So we, yeah, we went straight away the first day. So we went A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D throughout the first day. And then as everybody got a little more tired, then we try A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. Uh-huh. And then you instead you get a two-and-a-half-hour sleep, for example. So, it still wasn't great. So, we went to 20 minutes in 96, and that was super fast. So, we went across country in 96 in five days, eight hours. um, And that was just so smooth and so easy. And speeds were high. Recovery was good. Sleep was zero. You know, each racer could sleep three to five hours in the whole five-day period. (laughs) So... That's not a lot of sleep. Is there any training for that? Or is that something you just know you're going to go into it and say, we just suck it up. The, the, the writing is one thing, but the lack of sleep, that's another animal. There is no training for that. I don't think. No. So sleep deprivation can't be taught. Right. It can be experienced. Yeah. So, and it's worse for the crew. So I'll take a little deviation here. Um, what I learned in 94, I took to 95. What I learned in 95 from the crew, I took to 96. So it teaches you how to pick people to be on your crew. And what you're hoping is that people don't have little mini meltdowns. They don't affect the other crew members. So you, you, you're picking people that you believe are mentally able to handle extreme stress under and no sleep and sleeping in a van and being woken up and yeah. um, sleeping on the side of a road, on a van floor, or even on the side of a road, or in a city park, on a bench. You can't imagine the crew. It's worse for the crew. Because the, mas- the racers get massaged. They're never up. <laughs> right. The racers get massaged. The racers get handed their food. They get their clothes handed to them. Hey, do this, do that. Yeah. I mean, by yeah. and large. Right. Obviously... The crew falls apart too. So eventually you take care of the racers, take care of themselves. Right. But the crew has it tougher. And how the hell do you handle nutrition during one of these races? What's, what's the protocol? 
So nutrition is, we learn to go all liquid. Okay. And then we go for comfort food when you're destroyed. So you start off with this, the first couple of years, I would say people were thinking, hey, I'm going to have some cliff bars or some power bars, and I'm going to have a gel and a goo, and I'm going to have this, and I'm going to have that. And every time I, I can't stay awake, I'm going to have a caffeine shot of goo or a, a, like it's almost like having a double espresso. Well, caffeine is a diuretic. Yes. So you lose your hydration, you start cramping worse, or you get diarrhea. So the problem with nutrition in that type of a race is you're trying to last for five days, not one day and not a marathon, which is, you know, for some people two hours and some people five. Yeah. So nutrition became highly liquid. And then when you were just needing a comfort food, you would have a Subway tuna sandwich or you'd have a somebody's cheeseburger. Like once in 95, I found this place in Tennessee and they, I opened up a Sears cold spot, closed refrigerator in this family it looked like somebody's home. There wasn't even a mini mart. And it, it was a cheesecake. And I said, is that for sale? Well, everything can be sold. You know, so right, right. I bought a cheesecake and I ate it. <laughs> and then somehow at a, we got a Pizza Hut pizza somewhere and I ate that. I've probably never gone faster. But uh, at that time of the race, so you're looking for mental pick-me-ups. Even if the nutrition isn't good for you, you're so good mentally. It's like, oh, all right, I got some. Good food in me. I'm gone. So you yeah. you take off. Yeah. Pretty fun. What was one of your favorite experiences during those races? Besides, I'm assuming winning the record and still holding that record, that's probably up there. But actual race day experience, what's your favorite? I think I'm going to go back to Norm Hoffman for one moment because he always said, did you look around? Did you see the flowers? Did you see? What did you see? Did you, Was your head just down? You know, you got to enjoy what you're doing. So he was always really instrumental in making me appreciate. We'd be just full rivet, anaerobic threshold riding training together. And he goes, look at that. That's red tail hawk. Oh, my God. Look at the coyote. Yeah. Did you see that? Look at the wildflowers. Oh, my God. Look at the flowers. Yeah. He said, <laughs> and you, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. You're just trying to survive. Right. But yeah. he was always looking at the nature and things like that. So I would say the coolest experience of Ram for me going now that it's so many years gone by is looking at TV shows and saying, that's Tennessee, that's Arkansas, that's Iowa, that's Eastern Oklahoma. I know every road or I know every topography or I know their, their basic, um, you know, like climate zone they're in. Yeah. And you can tell the roads and you know where you are. You it's just amazing to to actually have seen and smelled every inch of America. So how how do you train for a race like that and own a business? How'd you balance it all out? Because that is what Move My Mass is all about, really. Balancing life with right. whatever fitness activity you're involved in. How'd you do it? How'd you do both? Well, that's kind of multifaceted. What I did training-wise was I would ride an hour before work. And because the intensity, the speeds we have to keep and the learning that one hour was too long in 94, 30 minutes was too long in 95, 20 minutes seemed good in 96, 15 was great in 98, 15 and 10 obviously set a record in 2004. Yeah. So you take all that information and you go, all I really need to do is just 
take the bike path hard as I can all the way to Enos. And that's only 17 minutes. And do it at the lowest heart rate you can do it. Take a little break. Pretend you're in the van for 15 minutes and you're doing your ABAB. Okay. So you just kind of sit there, take a drink, calm yourself down, let the heart rate recover, haul ass back, shower, go to work. Lunchtime, guess what you do? You either go on a group ride and you ride with the local yokels. Yeah. And you just hang out with them and you socialize. And that's kind of a kind of medium recovery ride. And at then the closing time, you either go do another time trial or you do something to spin your legs out. So each day I would do three rides, knowing that I'm going to be doing 18 rides a day in RAM. Minimum. Now, how do you balance that with my work? Um, I really only missed one hour of work by doing it that way. So one hour before, one hour in lunchtime, wait for work to close. Yeah. And if it was dark, it was dark. Um, that's Rams, eight to 10 hours of darkness. Right. So it really worked. That's, uh, yeah, because that is uh, an insane event to train for, obviously. And so let's, let's fast forward to now, you know, got a daughter that is involved in uh, horse jumping. Yep. Or English hunter jumper. English hunter jumper. Yep. Yeah. Which I assume requires a lot of travel. You're wanting to stay in shape still. What's it like now? What's it like running your business now, staying in shape versus those days? Well, I think that, you know, I put on the, the dad hat and like you, you, your kids become more important in your personal quest because I think a, we've both achieved what we wanted to achieve. So I think when Ram does feel selfish, because it is like, hey, those are my three hours. Nobody's going to get in my way. And then my daughter was um, about five at the time I did 2004's race. But I was still able to say, well, it's not going to affect her as long as I do these three hours at this this time and, and give her everything else I have. Now that she's an equestrian and now that she's in college and even during high school, um, I would say that. I definitely prioritize her more than my own fitness. And I would say that um, it was easy to put on the dad hat. That's what I was getting to a minute ago. I think that once you've achieved your own, you want other people to achieve it, right? whether it's family or friends. And, um, and so it's like, because you know how to, you want to pass it on. So I kind of showed her, like, here's my training ethic. I'm going to go work out. You're going to be doing this. In fact, here's a good example. I would drive her to the barn. I would mm-hmm. help her tack her, her, her horse because she was so small at the time. Right. She couldn't even reach to put a saddle on, let alone hardly saddle lift. Saddle weighed more this, than she did, probably. Right, the, saddle, yeah. the saddle weight and everything else. So I'd make sure I'd tack her up, I'd get ready for the lesson, and I would jump on my bike because there's nothing I could do other than watch her. Um, and, you know, I don't want to even distract her during the lesson. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go ride my two hours. Mm-hmm. And while she's doing this, so I just rip up Arvin White Wolf and I go around the loop and, you know, 39 mile loop and then come back to the barn and then untack the horse, load her in the car. So it was a perfect, we had a nice balance between her horse riding and my riding. I just made the two fit together. Um, Secondly, I would say that um, as I got closer to some of the bigger events, I definitely had to train more. And that's when you would either get on the trainer early while she's asleep or you wait till she goes to sleep at night. And get on a trainer, or mm-hmm. you would you you just balance the schedule though. But yeah. the kids, I think, you know, to me, kids are more important because once you've it's 
I'm not a pro. I can't pretend I'm going to be in the Olympics or be some amazing athlete. I'm just this guy who's this big and I don't want to lose any moment with my daughter. So it is more important to be with your daughter or child. Yeah. Are you training for anything at the moment? Is there anything in the near future or distant I have future? A, I have a couple of pipe dreams that are so big, but you know, the, um, for whatever reason, my personal ego is the way it is. I like big events and, um, I've done the Rams. I don't need to go back until somebody breaks the record, which is going to be tough. And now that I'm older, I don't know if I could go back and be a good four man racer anyway, unless I hire pros, which I don't want to do. I just want to keep it friendly and fun. So that being said, um, now we have a local guy in town named Jimmy Watkins, who's an amazing, uh, Olympian, uh, he's a fireman. He has two kids. He's yeah. a guy that you should interview next because he has balanced being a full-time fireman, two young kids, and he's six in the Olympics as an amateur, not a paid athlete. Um, and his wattage has been recorded as the highest in the world. So that's got to be, what kind of wattage is that? Well, like the other day he hit 2350, just joking around on a, on a watt bike. And a watt bike is the standard for testing wattage. 2,350 watts. On, without a warm-up. And I, I honestly a, didn't know that was possible. I, I did a video of it. And it, it looked like a combination of Hercules. And I've never seen a bike that weighed 100 pounds being bent. He was just pulling so hard. This whole bike is just contorting. So I don't know where I was going with this. So um, you were... You have some events you're oh, thinking so about. Jimmy became this track star. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So he went from a what they call a cat five nobody to a cat two in less than one year on the track. Then he set a national record. And then he became America's best racer. And then he went to the Olympics and got sixth. And honestly, you know, he said to get on the, for example, um, the American team that year didn't have enough points to go as a team. Okay. So Jimmy was not going to be able to go to the Olympics unless he had a phenomenal Pan Am game. So he got as fit as he could possibly get for Pan Am. So he had to peak early for Pan Am and he won. So mm -hmm. it got him on the Olympic team or the Olympic, they got him qualified for the Olympics. So that being said, he said he probably felt better at Pan Am than he did in the Olympics but he had to peak at Pan Am in order to make it there. Yeah. So that's just a testimony to, hey, he, he got there though. Right. He, oh, did yeah. he did it. So, um, so Jimmy and I have been talking about doing track. And then um, my wattage is still high enough for being my age to where one of my pipe dreams was, hey, let's go after the world hour record. It seems pretty lofty. Hardest race there is. They call mm -hmm. it the race of pain, the race of truth. They call it a bunch of things. But an hour record on like Mexico City track, 6,000, 9,000 feet elevation, whatever it is, um, lower air density down there. And we've been studying all the wattages of what the racers hold on the straights and the corners. Uh -huh. And then, um, so one of my pipe dreams was to try to go after an age group world hour record. And then because of COVID, our, the potential date was April. 
And that got blown up because obviously, the, yeah. Obviously, you can't get the UCI, you can't get some of the officials there, you can't get certain people in the gym. So now we're looking at August. It's not out of the question yet. It's still a pipe dream. Uh, it doesn't mean I can even come close. It just means that I have um, set myself a goal that is so big that you can't hide from it. Yeah. And my goal is to train and set certain benchmarks along the way. So each month I have to hit a certain wattage at a certain watts over kilogram. Mm -hmm. And I have to hit a certain place or either I'm fooling myself or I have to train harder. Yeah. So at this point, you know, one of my goals is the hour record. Jimmy wants me to go after pursuit in the world championships in um, LA, which will be um, September, which I've never raced pursuit. I've never raced on a track. This sounds pretty lofty. It is but very nothing lofty. Like, nothing like biting something off. But you mentioned Mexico City. It, you can race anywhere you want to pull this off? Yeah. So if or, you arrange it, you can rent a track. Uh -huh. And But if you rent the track, you have to have a certain number of people, uh, like a certain period of time that you block the track out. And then you have to have a certain number of people to go. They're all attempting a record in certain oh. either age groups. And it's almost like a lottery to get into a big race. Okay. So the Mexico City is, um, there are only two times of the year where the air is perfect. And um, April would have been better than August, but August is still really good. Mm -hmm. And then if everything happens right, we get the right officials lined up. It would be amazing if I hit the benchmarks to even try a record like that. So that being said, uh -huh. I have to be able to hold a certain amount of wattage in that aerodynamic position at my age. So as you know, you lose flexibility. Mm -hmm. Lose a lot of things as we get older. You lose recovery. So the training becomes more intense. Can I recover from it? The position becomes more intense. Can I hold the position? Um, so it's a big lofty goal. Oh, is there a lot of weight training involved for that? Not for the hour. Pursuit oh. would be a lot of weight training. Okay, but not for the hour. Yeah. The hour is just more about you just go out and learn to suffer and you learn to do hold certain speeds for... So you have five-minute intervals or 20-minute intervals, and then you what you're thinking is, okay, I've got to hold that speed for an hour. So you're hoping that your five-minute is significantly faster than your hour. You're hoping that your 20 is, you know, 10% higher than your hour, for example. Okay. And so you have to sit there and go, if you can't race at this speed for 20 minutes, you definitely can't do an hour at this speed. So. And you're hoping to go this August. That would this be, coming August. If it happens. That's what you're hoping. If we can get the lottery. And then... It, at what point will you know, you know what, this, there's a good possibility I'm going to pull this off. Or, you know what, man, these numbers aren't working out. They're right. just not. What's that date? What's that Well, you know what? Range. I would say um, 60 days out, I have to, hit a, have to hit a certain number of watts and in a position that is aerodynamically efficient. And if I'm not in that position... That just means either I didn't lose, lose enough weight or I can't pull my knees high enough in the stroke to hold the watts I need to hold. So right now I can hold the watts, but I'm in a very upright position. Mm -hmm. um, and when you've been down, you just lose power. Right. Because you're just squeezing off the muscles. So I still, I have good power for where I am. So if I lose the weight, my power to weight ratio goes up. So it's, it's, a, it's a big question mark. So when will you start getting on the track bike? When does that happen? Well, I bought one. Um, so picture this. I've never raced on the track. 
So this okay. is just one of those, like, shoot me in the head things. Well, why not do well, something why not? different? Go why so not? big, right? Right. So Jimmy said, "Hey, we're going to go to the track. We have he has plenty of friends because of his past that will will get us some track time. He'll teach me what he knows. The other guy said he knows will help me. Um, so we're going to get on the track and, and just start knocking it out and just start trying it out and seeing if I can hold my line. So controlling the bike has always been one of my strengths. Mm-hmm. So I think I'll do okay controlling the bike, but I don't know if I can hold the position and control the bike. So you see these people and they're all super stretched out and they're just like, yeah, like they're buried, their heads down, their backs dead flat. And I'm not that guy right now. So I've got a lot of yoga to do. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah that's right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, but that's, uh, if there's anybody that's going to pull something like that off, it's you. Oh, I, I appreciate the compliment. However, the ego, if you, if you back yourself into a corner, you can mm-hmm. achieve it. You talk to yourself a big enough game, you have to back it up. It's like, you brag this much, you better sh- either back it up or shut up. That's right. And that's Bite it off. My mantra. Tell, <laughs> come on something like this, tell yeah. people that that's your goal, and now you just have to go pull it off. Well, by doing this online, I'm yeah. buried, I just buried myself today. You buried yourself. I haven't told two people about my pipe dream here. Well, you just told 1.7 million there people. There you go. <laughs> Hopefully soon. Crazy. Hey, Carrie, I want to thank you so much for coming on tonight. My pleasure. Uh, been looking forward to talking with you on here and got it done and wish you the best of luck in business, your daughter with her horses, and uh, hopefully you go get that record. Well, That'll be a great it. thing. Confidence. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh-huh.